With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, Crawl Space and Missing More Murray fans. We wanted to bring you a new episode from LA Not So Confidential, a podcast done by our friends, Drs. Shiloh and Scott, who were on the Missing More Murray podcast this week. And they have an episode called Intimate Partner Homicide that we feel is great for our audience. So check it out and subscribe to LA Not So Confidential. There are links in the show notes. Thanks a lot for listening, and we hope you love it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh. Hey, it's Dr. Scott. Hi, we are in October. We're super stoked about um, one of our favorite months of the year. So um, getting into the Halloween spirit with a lot as well as just kind of um, have a lot of events coming up. So it feels like a whirlwind for us. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the next month. And It's kind of cool, as a lot of you have seen, if you're following our social media, we just hit our two-year birthday, really, of starting this, which is kind of mind-blowing, because it seems like, it it literally seems like yesterday we were walking down first in spring, and you turned to me and said, I think we should do a podcast. Yeah. I mean, it like seems like yesterday. I've, I've ver- it does, and I totally liken it to having a child. We have l- literally kept this thing alive for two years, so yeah. I'm very proud of us as parents. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's funny. Um, you know, most people would say it's it's funny to listen to other podcasts, especially ones that I love, and they'll say don't don't listen to our first episodes. Don't go back and listen to our first episodes because they're awful. And I, I would say I agree partially with that in that um, we've, we've come a long way. We've kind of found our legs in a, in a way that I really never expected to. But any, if you're out there and you're thinking about doing a podcast, I want you to listen to our first episode so you can see like just how far we've come. Yeah, that's a I good mean, way to put just it. Just figuring things out and, and everybody has to start from someplace. Uh-huh. I mean, you, and you were really helpful for me because I'm such a weird perfectionist. You wouldn't be able to tell by looking at my office because it looks like someone had a full-on grand mall in there. But you, you know, you keep me on track, and I kept thinking, "Okay, oh, got to make this perfect. Got to make this perfect." And you were sort of, "No, we just got to get it done." Right. Well, and I think that's something that I would also, if I could redo, it would be. I felt like we had all of these ideas in our brains. We just wanted to get them out super fast, and maybe we could have taken a little bit more time to 
learn the equipment or learn, you know, those sort of things. But when you're ready to go, you just want to get your stuff out there to see how people will start responding to it. So it's been a really, really fun journey these two years. So Hey, thanks for that, by the way. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So lots in store for you for October. Our topic today is intimate partner homicide. Heavy topic. Yeah. Um, so this came across my radar when I was at, again, some training recently and just wanted to dive a little bit more into it because I've. It, it was really nice for it to be parsed out as a separate topic because I feel like I hear about it all the time. So much of the true crime that we consume is about intimate partner homicide. It's just too common and I think we need to give some attention to that. So we wanted to cover the topic to touch on it. By no means are either of us experts in the areas of domestic violence and um, the the intricacies of studying and researching intimate partner homicide as our full on like forte. Um, it's a it's a it's its own specific area of study that deserves its own specific area of study just due to its prevalence. And yeah. one of my professors at, at Antioch, the graduate program I was in, Dr. Michelle Harway is uh, an expert in the area of intimate partner violence and domestic violence, um, which we'll get into why we, we're actually changing the terms now to be more inclusive, right. which is very important. Right. But I remember that I remember being in a class uh, where she was sort of covering part of it. It was a class that covered more than just that, but sort of uh, looking at violence. And we uh, used her, the book that she had published as a textbook. And, you know, sometimes you think when, when a professor gives you their own book, you're like, oh, please. Right. But, Take my money. Yeah. But I got to tell you, this this was amazing. And it's um, the, the title is particularly provocative. It's called Next Time She'll Be Dead. Wow. Um, and it was it was an eye opener for me. I was just completely unaware of the depth and, and and spectrum of, you know, the cycle of violence, course of control, all the things right. we're going to kind of touch on today. Right. And of course, we wanted to pair a story with this. And there's been so many lately and we didn't want to do something that's been overdone already or talk about you know, Dirty John again. Um, So I stumbled across this story about Connie Navarro um, kind of in an unusual way. Um, So I, I like and am into a lot of street art, local street artists here in Los Angeles and um, started seeing some that was done by, Jane's Addiction's guitarist, Dave Navarro. He's, he's a street artist. He lives in Los Angeles, and he, he takes his art all over. Um, but it was what really jumped out to me, being the true crime junkie that I am, is that a lot of his content um, was having to do with kids that were victim of trauma or crime. And he does a lot of stencil work, kind of, you know, if you guys are probably familiar with, like, Banksy. And that sort of work, you know, on stencil work on sidewalks and on buildings and walls and such. Um, And he does some other things as well, just some really cool mediums that he uses. 
but the, really the stuff that you were seeing on the street and some of the content was um, John Bonet Ramsey and it was JFK's kids, you know, kind of iconic photos then turned into a stencil. And I thought that's such a dark <laughs> um, sort of angle to take with, with your art. And then when I started following on social media, I saw that a lot of this series is what he was calling trauma kids, you know, hashtag trauma kids was on this. And so I, I looked into it a little further and realized that Dave is a child survivor of a parental homicide. And this is a way in which he is healing and working through his own trauma and identifying with some of these other children that have been victims um, in various ways. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so we're going to talk later in the episode about the death of his mother, Connie Navarro. But first, let's start with um, talking about intimate partner homicide. Just to define that, so I, that would be the killing of a spouse, ex-spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, someone that has been in a relationship with the perpetrator, whether it's current or they've already broken up. Um, of the women murdered in the United States, 55% of them, over half, it's by an intimate partner. So we're talking about That's the vast a staggering majority. That's a, just, yeah. It's huge. I mean, we, we know, I think we know this, but to, to hear the numbers, I didn't really know exactly where the numbers were. Um, but when we're just looking at violence, you know, men, men are still predominantly the highest rates of victims because they're killing each other. Um, but when we look at, of the women who are murdered, 55% of them over half, it's from somebody that they were in a relationship with. It's just astounding. Um, but again, I think it, we then we pull back and we go, well, yeah, of course, we know people are murdered by people close to them usually. Um, I thought it was really interesting that the when you look at Hispanic women, um, they're most likely to be killed in connection to partner violence um, above and beyond even the 55%. It's about 61%. So... Um, and we, I think we talk about that in terms of, or we have to, <clears throat> we reflect on that in terms of uh, cultural influence. You know, when you, when you provide counseling to uh, Latina uh, women, the idea of them, one of the things that's brought up, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in my experience in counseling this population, what I've noticed is that they're up against sort of, uh, pushing back or trying to have an identity in the presence of, you know, a long history of machismo, uh, acculturization right. where that there isn't really the same level of respect for gender equality. It just, it just isn't there yet. Right. And, right. um, unfortunately, you know, that, that's going to add fuel to the fire for these type of, uh, violent interactions. Sure. Some other, just looking at, um, Race. Some other stats that I came across were looking at women as victims of homicide, not necessarily intimate partner, but that black women and indigenous women were above and beyond um, victims 
um, more often than other ethnic races. Um, so, in, in, and again, the, that wasn't related to particularly someone they've been in a relationship with. But we know violence against women is a, a terrible ongoing issue that is perpetrated. And still the f- flames continue to be fanned in lots of different ways. Um, well, there's also more information. I mean, I was completely ignorant of the uh, homicide rate of indigenous women in North America, right. you know, going over into Canada. Canada. And it, it kind of hooks back to other subjects that we've talked about, like long haul trucker serial killers. There's a, like a, a highway of death in Canada where sure. all of these indigenous women have disappeared. And, you know, it's on one hand, it's, it's horrific. And on the other hand, it's, it's high time that we start paying attention to it for, for those, those of us that are in the, the field like myself to only recently become aware of it. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. Right. Right. What always fascinated me for decades has just been one of those cases that stick out for me is all the women murdered in Juarez, Mexico. Right. Um, and so, yeah, when you talk about North America, it is definitely a problem over the entire continent. So, um, however, in the past 25 years, um, the rates at which women are dying by intimate partners has significantly declined. Um, so, and, and we see that across all race and gender groups. So, depending on who they're in a relationship with, as far as the gender of the perpetrator as well. And, I mean, it's likely due to the criminal justice policies and laws that have been in place. Now we know what domestic violence is and we're recognizing it for what it is. Um, the laws and the policies that are put there to keep the offender away from the victim as much as possible. We know that that, you know, some of them are just pieces of paper. If it's we're talking about restraining orders. Oh, absolutely. Um, but. There are but a some, necessary part of the process yeah. as well. Until our until our judicial system can catch up with what needs to be done in this situation, you know, it, you know, it may be just a piece of paper in whatever area of the U.S. or around the world you live, but it's it's the first step. And you know, if you find yourself in that situation, get the restraining order. Sure, get it. Sure, but it could be something like the the laws in which. The victim doesn't necessarily have to prosecute. You know, the state can take on the role of we're prosecuting this because of so many women that would recant or not want to follow through with prosecution. So sort of taking that out of their hands. So lots of changes just in the last 25 years that have probably done some real good work out there, um, as well as, you know, I just thinking off the top of my head, involving domestic violence advocates or social workers to some of these women in their cases. And we've seen how that doesn't always work and that can all be in place. And then you have a situation like Nicole Brown Simpson, who had all of that support around her and still, you know, there was definitely a lot lot left to be desired still with the criminal justice system and helping her out. Um, But overall, I, I think it's, pretty neat to see that the laws are working the way they have with 25 years under our belt to sort of look at at this time. Um, And so especially with like the behavioral analysis unit and the FBI, they look at intimate partner violence leading up to homicide as being 
physical, sexual, psychological, like we talk about, but they also put a lot of attention on the component of stalking and those types of behaviors um, because they know that is so embedded with a lot of the offenders that end up killing their partners or former par- partners. The behavior, especially when they're doing their investigations and these psychological autopsies of what was happening with the victim prior to the offense, all of the stalking behavior is coming to light. Which, make sure you go back and listen to our stalking episode. Yeah. We'll give you plenty on stalking because we're not going to re- cover it so much here. Um, maybe in our case study, yes, but um, not the ins and outs like we did before. So um, risk factors. So let's talk about risk factors a little bit when we're looking at men who end up killing the women that they're in relationships with. Um, past violence. Obviously, like we always say, best best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if they've been violent in the past, um, particularly when we talk about violence, if there's been recent attacks and recent violence, and if it's been very frequent, then that is showing a ramp up to maybe an event that could be fatal. Um, So does that mean that they're getting more comfortable with it? Or is it something else? Is that something else is escalating their... I think all of the above. Okay. Uh, when we're looking at the the research on risk factors, and, and you know, uh, risk factors just are what they are. Sometimes we can ask these like why or if backstories to risk factors, and we don't necessarily have that, or it doesn't matter. It's just because that risk factor is present. Point. Excellent point. It just doesn't um, even matter. Let's just look at the fact. But I think as just curious human beings, we want to know, like, what what is that about? Right. Why is that? And I, I find myself doing that all the time. Um, I want to break here and talk about a specific type of violence, which is so interesting to look at if there is strangulation present in these previous bouts of violence and attacks, how that leads to fatal incidents of violence with these women. Um, So strangulation, and it's strangulation, it's not choking. I'm sorry. This is like my total pet peeve. You choke on a piece of food, (laughs) you strangle someone. (laughs) So in in the language and reports, I actually read a document put out by the U.S. Department of Justice that used the term choking, and I wanted to um, choke whoever wrote. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to strangle them. Um, you wanted to shove some food down there. <laughs> I wanted to force them here, to choke. Choke on <laughs> this. Make you choke. Um, so it's strangulation. Um, so the San Diego City Attorney's Office, they did a study, and they looked at about 300 near-fatal cases of strangulation. They found... The, the nuts and bolts of their findings was that for each strangulation that happens, that woman is 750 more percent more likely to be killed than a woman where her partner has never strangled her, where he's just done other types of violent acts towards her. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, it's just... Yeah, and it also, it, it speaks to me of another important point is that strangulation takes a long time 
It does. It, it's not an instantaneous. It's not right. like stabbing someone, shooting someone, or even, you know, um, bludgeoning someone that then incapacitates them. Like, we're in a fit of rage. You're like, oh shit, what did I just do? Right. No, you have to, you ma- you're maintaining it. Like, it's, isn't it like three to seven minutes? Something like it's that. It's like three to seven minutes as you, you know, and that's where I think it, that, that's really reflective of the narcissism and the sociopathy and the perpetrator. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there are, um, Organizations that are dedicated to domestic violence research and awareness and prevention that are just focusing on strangulation because it is such a big deal. So getting the information out to women if they have been strangled and what that means for them, um, as well as the awareness for the rest of us to sort of recognize signs in maybe friends or family where that's been going on, you know, we're literal you know, damage to different parts of their body that might not be super obvious, um, like the pictorial hemorrhaging or something like that. Um, but it's it's just, it's a really huge, significant risk factor for fatal cases. Um, I also think, you know, not only does it take a long time, but it's something that can sort of teeter on is it going to be fatal or is it not? If if it can be another way to control or sort of take someone to the edge of death. Well, to terrorize them, right? And terrorize. So Yeah, so I, I kind of – I have my, your life literally in my hands. Um, it's sort of akin to holding a gun and pointing it at someone, you know, because all you got to do is pull the trigger. And with strangulation, all you have to do is, you know, push hard enough or hold hard enough. Um, but it's, it's a very serious thing if that's going on in a relationship. Other risk factors are things like drug use, um, serious alcohol abuse. Those are both highly, highly correlated with, um, individuals who end up going on to kill their partners, um, and gun possession. So, um, we do have laws in a lot of states that if you've been convicted of a domestic violence offense, you can no longer legally own a firearm. So I'm sure that's a piece that has also been within policies in the last 25 years that have helped contribute to the decline. Um, But I think a lot of research, there also are not too many, too much research or interventions that look at drug abuse, um, and alcohol abuse when it comes to these types of situations. Um, let me bring, I have a really great chart here that I wanted to bring up to just kind of talk about the difference between women who are abused and then those that end up getting murdered. And for all of these that I'm going to list, these risk factors for the women who end up being murdered, they experience these behaviors from their partner at at least twice the rate of so, women who were uh, not murdered. So the what you're talking, what you're going to show us then, or what you're going to talk about, is factors that pretty much indicate a high probability of resulting in death. Right. Okay. Right. All right. So we have a partner used or threatened with a weapon at some point it could be any weapon, um, and then just having a gun in the house was a high risk factor as well. Um. We already talked about partners trying to strangle the woman. Partner violently and consistently jealous. So we're looking at 
attitudes and maybe some personality weaved in there. Um, we always hear the, with these types of cases, if I can't have her, no one can type of situation, which is also going to be echoed in the case study that we talk about. Um, physical violence increases in severity. The partner controls most or all of the women's daily activities. Um, so from who she's speaking to, to where she's going, um, all of the above. The partner, the male partner, um, illicit drugs. And when it comes to alcohol, really focusing on the, the alcohol abuse as if they are drunk every day or almost every day. So if they're getting to the point of pretty decent intoxication, that's when we say, start to see what, like inhibitions go down, they're more impulsive, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and if that's happening, think about it on a daily basis. As, as I'm going through these, I just want to sort of paint a picture of, think about being a woman living in a home with a man like this, you know, like what, what eggshells are you walking on all the time just to make sure there's not some explosive violence that's going to, to be anchored towards you. Um, women who are beaten while pregnant, Oof. and that's a big one, um, in terms of them ending up, um, being murdered. Um, the woman's perception of her partner being capable of killing her. So when they go back and they look at statements or, um, with people they, that have been able to be interviewed or maybe something they've confided to in a friend, and a lot of these cases, you know, what Susan Powell right. and you know, they're writing full on letters. If anything should ever happen to me, look at my husband. Here's my stuff. Like getting all their ducks in a row and documenting. I think Nicole Brown Simpson did the same thing. And, and it's just it, it's mind blowing. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here with my hands over my face like it really is mind blowing. And maybe I'm speaking from a place of male privilege of the idea that that anyone would be in that position, even though we've heard story after story of this, that someone, oh, I'm probably going to get killed. Mm -hmm. So I just need to put everything in place rather than do anything and everything. Right. And I like, I mean, once again, I know that I'm speaking from a place of, of privilege. But and, you're saying it's, it is. It's hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. And I think even a woman, you know, a lot of women sure. would go, what the hell? Why? We do, do it all the time, right. all the time. Um, and it's just one of those things that I'm going to let the victim speak to me and tell me how it is for them. And I'm going to believe that rather than taking my view of like, oh, this is what I would do yeah, sort of stance. Um, but it is. It's hard to imagine. Definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons we also know that when we talk about uh, victims of domestic violence and intimate partner violence, there is no solid profile for a person. So we can't and, and we cannot and neither nor should we blame the victim. In, right. Well, if he or she was just had stronger character or if he or she picking better partners, pick better partners right. or, you know, to have to carry yourself or like, why aren't you thinking of the kids? It's not about that. It's about the the narcissism and sociopathy on the other side of the person that just slowly continues to narrow the victim's life. Right, right. So there's two factors about suicide that was I found really interesting. So really the only factor on 
this that does not correlate with the woman being more likely to be murdered is if she feels suicidal or actually attempts suicide herself. Um, that basically has nothing to do with it. But if her partner is exhibiting suicidality, then that does show that if that's happening, then women are more likely to be murdered. So, Okay, now that's really interesting to me because that is in line with the Vitra model of the fluidity between suicidality and homicidality. Right. So if this, this perpetrator already has these homicidal violent ideations toward his partner plus his own suicidal ideation and is swinging wildly between those two, we have no idea knowing what the the Jenga block is that's going to be that could be pulled out. It could be anything. It could be innocuous. It could be a dog that gets in the way. It could be yeah. a dish that's dropped. Yep, yep. And hence, you know, murder suicide type situations. Um, but yeah, when a lot of our research in the field of psychology, when we talk about violence, violence is just a big umbrella where violence towards others and violence towards yourself is in there as well. So when you see a history of that in the past of somebody, they could also, you, you see that as a potential for violence, right. whether it's against yourself or someone else. So, um, so I think that's a good baseline. We're, Scott's going to talk about coercive control a bit, um, and then we're going to jump into our case study. So, right, and we've we've talked about this before. You know, I I always uh, circle back around to give enormous enormous credit to Laura Richards of Paladin. Uh, uh, Laura Richards, who I'm, most of you, I'm sure, if you're in the genre, you're aware of who she is. She's a criminal behavior analyst in the UK. And she's the director of Paladin, which is an organization um, that, you know, is, seeks to continue to reform violence law uh, campaigns and to criminalize this concept that we're talking about, which is coercive control, which I think is a that's a big task um, because so many aspects of coercive control and Lenore Walker's cycle of violence mm -hmm. are are somewhat ephemeral because they're about behavior. And how do you crimin criminalize behavior? that is still in its nascent stages where an individual is assumed to be able to have insight into how much choice they have. So I think that's a big challenge she's up against. If you, if you're at all interested at all interested in educating yourself on this, I mean, just Google Laura Richards and Paladin course of control, tons of her articles come up. She's a wonderful speaker and she's a regular contributor to another podcast by the casting director of Criminal Minds. Right. Real what Crime Profile. Real Crime Profile. Right. Because I'm the worst at remembering names. <laughs> I like, think we talked about her a lot. We have. We talked about her episode. several times and I, I think she's great. And I think she also has so many great articles that are really written for laymen too. And one of the ones that I, I love is it just basically says, are you in an abusive relationship? And it's like sort of the anti-cosmopolitan here, take quiz. this quiz you know, to see if. But it's necessary, you know. If you're if you're having doubts, you know, it's 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 necessary. But you know, even Laura, who has uh, moved this forward, I, I love love calling her Laura. I it? know. You know, we're just like buds, right? It's because my mom's Ms. Name Richards. Is Laura, yes, so exactly. You feel comfortable with that. Um, but she, you know, the, she didn't come up with the. She's taking this concept and she's moving it forward. And the, the concept itself, the term, was developed by Evan Stark. Um, and what Evan Stark did, who's an academic in this area, is he wanted to make 
like you were really in parallel what you were talking about, the difference between choking and strangling. Mm -hmm. He wanted to really narrow in um, on the definition of the term. So people that under the people have to understand that domestic violence uh, is more than just a fight. You know, domestic violence is not one particular incident, just as bullying is not one isolated incident. You know, when he wanted to give something that really personifies, not personifies, but really delineates and expands on that particular concept. So it's this, what he's trying to do is explain that it's a pattern of behavior that really the goal of which is to take away the, the victim. God, I hate the word victim. Ugh, I'm having such a reaction to it. I don't know why, <laughs> well, but it is what it is. Yeah. But it's, it's about trying to take away an individual's freedom, um, their liberty. And what's really scary is to really attempt to take away their sense of self, to deconstruct their identity into this submissive position. So without going in, you know, you've already covered a lot about the perpetrator, but just like, Sitting with that for a second to think about that that is what an individual's goal is. My goal as a perpetrator of this abuse is to take someone and further objectify them and turn them into this non-entity that I then control in every way. It sounds like so much work. I mean, it, it it's... That's a really good point. It just, it, it like is you a said, lot of work. to have the, yeah, to have the mindset of this is what my goal is. And then, I mean, you got to be on top of it. You are shaping this person's behavior with every little thing and being very strategic about it. Well, from I think building we, up. And, and we've talked about, you know, grooming techniques and right. sexual offenders. And I think that it does take a lot of time. And also, it's so second nature to some of these character, yeah, characterologically yeah. disturbed individuals that this is just what they do. This is just True. the way they walk through life. True. But, I mean, when it gets into the stalking, which we'll talk about in the Dave Navarro right. um, example, I mean, that was a lot of work. That yep. was a lot of phone calls. It was a lot of, was. like, surveillance, right? Yeah. I mean, did the guy work? Right. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think that's some of the, the language we use in the stalking episode was surveillance. But, you know, getting back to this, is the, the goal was to, instead of using the term domestic violence, they want the phrase domestic abuse so that they can really expand on the definition that it's not about fights. It's about an ongoing situation. And it, it, it contains and is made up of much more than just violence, more than just physical right. violence. It is a matter of it's brainwashing yeah. in many ways. It is narrowing an individual's uh experiential life, removing family members from the equation, removing so that you're just one, one by one, you're narrowing an individual's life so that they have nothing but you, which is now like, and now I'm sort of telling on myself. And what I said earlier is at the end of that, you've convinced a person that they have nothing and you've isolated from their friends, their families. Mm -hmm. So how can you leave that? If your sole support is this person who's been making every decision for you. Sure. Right. Sure. So, and I, you know, I like that it's gone towards intimate partner violence or abuse um, away from us using domestic violence so much because domestic as, as, you know, when I was working as a police officer, I mean, that could be between siblings or parents and children, like adult children, um, to where anyone who lived in the household, it could be a domestic 
issue. So if you're cohabitating with that person, that's sort of how the law was written. Um, and now this is just even more narrowly defined and looking specifically. Yeah, and I would um, say it, because they're two different things. They're two different. Not things. that there's not underlying issues going on with those other situations, but it's different from what you're describing. Yeah, and it also feels like that the word domestic has just been so processed down that it may that like it doesn't hold any weight anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I don't know, but I'm I'm glad that this work is being done. I mean, it's. This particular model, which is um, so similar to the uh, Lenore Walker cycle of violence, really uses specific techniques, like I was talking about before, isolation from social circle, social support networks, family, degradation, whether whether uh, obvious or whether subtle, whether it is sort of, so, oh, gosh, what's the term they use in the pickup art, the, the negging? You know, sort of you you elevate one part of the individual's physical attributes. Oh, you're so beautiful. God, it's just, if, you're, if your teeth were straight, you'd be a knockout, you know, that right. kind of thing. And it can start with that, but then go on to more insidious forms of degradation or more explicit as well as implicit. And then mind games. We've talked about gaslighting. Gaslighting is a, a, a ridiculous phenomenon that is used by these uh, these individuals. But... Probably the most, the one that puts all of these things, that makes all of these things be able to be integrated into this uh, technique is micro-regulation. And micro-regulation to me, the the more I read about this and preparing for this, I mean, it explains itself. It's basically every single detail of the victim's life is regulated and it made me think of the movie Sleeping with the Enemy. Right. Remember when he comes home and Julia Robert like no they show Julia Roberts desperately in the kitchen trying to get all of the cans oh, lined up facing, after she yes. The labels facing a certain way. All the labels have to be faced a certain way right. and then he comes in very like was it Patrick Bergen I think is the actor that played him but he opens the cabinet and he sees one that is just like a micro hair off and he it doesn't end up in violence then but you can tell by the shift in him and the fear in Julia Roberts character's eyes that like oh shit right you know i've i've fucked up really bad cuz i haven't been able to keep this up and that that's pretty terrifying. Well, can you imagine how much it took to get her to that place to where yeah. he's shaping that behavior and inducing that fear? And now you live on eggshells. Right. You just live on eggshells. You're nothing but like uh, nothing Ugh. but anxiety. Um, so what is it? Another quote that I really loved um, that from neurotypical.com that wrote on uh, Laura Richards' work is that the perpetrator creates a world in which the victim is constantly monitored and criticized. Every mood, every move is checked against an unpredictable, ever-changing, unknowable rule book. Oh. So that's the part is like the, the goalposts keep getting shift, shifted yeah. all the time. Yeah. Right. You know, so and by this time, you've already deconstructed the ego of the victim so that the victim doesn't have any facility or any agency with which to pull push back against this. So it's constant, constant living in fear. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think makes it coercive control that leads to other behaviors like stalking, even after the relationship is quote unquote ended mm-hmm. and then it moves into a stalking phase. One of the things that 
is different about the world that we live in here in the 21st century is that technology now allows you to engage in these behaviors, whether they're coercive control behaviors. I mean, we've got examples now that are being adjudicated all across the country of people monitoring their partners from work. Like they've got Nest cameras set up all over the house and they're monitoring everything. It's... It's a level that we would right. not have had to deal dealt with a decade ago. No, you would have had to do your own surveillance sitting outside their apartment waiting. Um, yeah, so so monitoring them in the moment and then the cyber stalking maybe afterwards or during as well. But there's just so many ways so to infiltrate someone's life and privacy. One of the – I mean for everybody here who's listened to Dirty John, which I think is beautifully produced, Laura – goes into it in depth in an episode of Real Crime Profile that I highly recommend because one of the things that she hits on that's so important that we've talked about in in different episodes, but the the initial, I think we talked about this mainly in the cult episode, was the initial stages is love bombing. You know, just love bombing, love bombing, love bombing. And, like, that's something that I would, for anyone that that is ever going to be potentially in one of these situations go back to common sense of when if it's if it's too good it's probably you know right too good to be true if it's too good to be true then it's probably not true and love bombing is something that gives that away yes you know it may feel good but it shouldn't feel good it should not feel real Oh, it shouldn't feel that good all the time in large amounts. Right. Because it's not going to be sustained. There's no No. way it can be sustained. No. Okay. So let's look at the case study we're going to talk about regarding Connie Navarro. Um, Again, if you don't know who Dave Navarro is, he's the guitarist for Jane's Addiction. He was with Red Hot Chili Peppers for an album. Um, He's a current host and judge on Ink Master, uh, which is a reality show about tattoos. He's married to Carmen Electra. They had a reality show leading up to their wedding on MTV back, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. I totally remember that. Um, and he has a podcast. He actually has a, a live radio show they do on the internet, but then they put it into podcast form. It's called Dave Navarro's Dark Matter Radio Podcast. Um, and they just kind of take all kinds of calls from listeners, and it's just kind of a cool call-in, anything-goes topic show. So so Dave put together a, um, a documentary called Morning Sun in 2015, and it's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And it was directed by his best friend, Todd Newman. And this is really his mom, Connie's story. I mean, it talks about Dave's process and he is the person recounting the, a lot of the events, but it also interviews a lot of family and friends of Dave and his mother and his father and tells the story of his mother's murder and subsequent capture of the perpetrator. And so we're going to talk about that now. So this documentary is a really beautiful tribute to Connie. Um, Connie was born in the 1940s, raised in the 1950s, and then she meets Dave's father and they get married in the 60s. Um, She's so beautiful. She's a model. She was on Let's Make a Deal. I think she was one of the models on the show. But 
she reminds me so much of Sharon Tate. You know, it's kind of the time. Yeah. And when she was a mom, I mean, she looks way more like Sharon Tate than Margot Robbie does. Yeah. Um, just with the hair, really soft features, gorgeous, big eyes, and just a California girl. I mean, gorgeous. It's kind of amazing, for one thing, the, the quality and the amount of material that they're able to use to really to really represent Connie. I mean, it's it's really well done. Their opening sequences, all these photos of her, and they've got like high resolution. I don't even know where they got the commercials. I mean, the commercials are right. They look great. Forty years old or right. more, more than forty years old. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing that they still had access to them, and you really get a sense of. That who certainly what she looked like, but then as you're hearing people describe how wonderful and kind she was, and non-reactive, and just a really really kind person, you know, you as you're listening to that and you're seeing these images of this beautiful young woman, you're you really get a a real sense for who she was, right? Because weaved in there are a couple of like family home videos and um you know you see her with children you see her with dave and just it's a it does a beautiful job of looking at what her life was like through this footage but also after she divorces dave's father and now we're into late 70s just kind of her finding her own freedom and being a single mom and um even with some of her art and like some of the pictures she was doing and things like that, just kind of progressive for the time. And it's just, it it was neat historically just to kind of follow that in image imagery. Um, but so, so she's divorced and in, in, um, the 1980s, she ends up meeting this guy named Dean and she starts dating Dean and he is, there's even video footage, um, of him over at her house. It looks like someone just set up the video camera. There's a ton of teenagers over just kind of hanging out. And everyone said like, she's the mom that we all totally dug. She was super cool. We come over and go swimming at Dave's house and she would make us food. And there's some video footage that's just sort of stationary in the, in the kitchen of her chopping up food the kids are being goofy and then you see this guy saunter in and he's got no shirt on you know they're in their bathing suits and he's muscular and fit but very macho very charismatic um but people described him even in small interactions of being just a little bit off and getting sort of a kind of a tough guy vibe from especially some of the neighbors even the younger guys that were just like dave's teenage friends i think what i was particularly struck by in listening to those reports from the the interviews and the the second and third hand reporting of people i mean there are several people who were interviewed saying talking about sharing their perspective and sharing other people's perspectives on meeting him what we're really talking about, regardless of how, what terms they use of, you know, his swagger versus his good looks and his physicality, is that their radar was telling him, telling all of them something was off. Right. You know, which I, I always want to go back to that, like, everybody has that innate radar and really you should be developing it. You should be hungry. You should. It because. You should. Every, I mean, when it comes now to come forward all these years later and be 
watching the story be recounted and, and sitting here with the information that we put together to think if they had known, if somebody had known early on, Right. And in the same way, you know, Dirty John. We yeah, go back yeah. to Dirty John. Oh, completely. So, there's such parallels here. There, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, but a lot of these people around her said, you know, she always found such, like, the good in people. And that's what she chose to look at. And um, But others were saying, ah, there was just this edge to him that we didn't really like. You know, whether it was a look or kind of this dark shadow across his face from every once in a while. Um but they date for not that long, only about a two and a half year relationship. Um, from Dave's perspective, they end up breaking up and there's not a lot of, you know, there's not one reason why necessarily. Um, it's suspected that maybe she found out about some past criminal behavior, but she finally breaks up with him for good, if you will. Um, and does so in a sense where it seems very fearful. She's changing locks at the house. Um, she is cognizant of the fact that he's sort of surveilling or casing the place to where she's having neighbors her drive her somewhere um, so she's not in her car. She's just kind of on, on high alert. And, you know, we are talking about earlier about living, walking on eggshells. You know, you can imagine not just her behavior, but now that's being portrayed to her 13, 14, 15-year-old son that's seeing this change in mom um, and what's going on. And and we'll go... I, I want to get to sort of the breakup of some of those behaviors, and then we'll sort of jump back to some things that he was doing at the time. But um, but there, there were... T- people remember while they were in the relationship of... Occasionally, her face would be swollen with bruises. Mm. Um, that a restraining order was talked about. Um, she was even going so far as to like making phone calls about seeking shelter, women's shelters at the time, um, and even thinking about moving out of town. So clearly, she knows that something bad is going on, but she's trying to protect it and and not tell a whole bunch of people about it or scare her child um but the day of her murder she it's it's march 3rd 1983 so they were together about two and a half years and they were only broken up for a couple of months before she was murdered so when we're talking about these behaviors that he's doing in between i mean it's happening in a short amount of time. Right. Eight weeks. Escalated very rapidly. Right, right. Um, so from her son's standpoint, you know, he's going to the day of her murder. He's in high school. He um, ends up getting picked up by his dad and then taken to his dad's home. And his dad said, you know, your mom hasn't been answering the phone. I'm going to go check on her. Um, and so the father, the divorced husband of Connie goes over about seven, eight o'clock at night and walks in and finds Connie as well as her best friend, which Dave knew as his aunt, um, Susan, both deceased in Connie's apartment. And, and her friend is in the bedroom deceased. And then Connie is in a hallway and 
like half of her body is shoved into a linen closet, a ground level linen closet with a towel or a pillow or something over her face. Um, and so he immediately, you know, goes outside and ends up calling police. Neighbors start coming out. Um, and it's just, it's horrific and heartbreaking to everyone. And Dave and his, I think a buddy of his, come up while, you know, by the time he gets to the home, every, the, all the, the, the police are there. Right. The area's been taped off. He's got, you know, one of the neighborhood moms is like yelling at him to get off the street, come come here, come right. here. You know, I mean, it just, you can only imagine what a, you know, a young teenage boy, man, sure. young teenager is feeling or not feeling, you know, there's just yeah. this overwhelm, right. not knowing what's going on. Well, and everyone knew right away that it was Dean. So exactly. the idea was, oh shit, where's Dave? He's home alone over at the father's house. Dean knows where the father lives. Someone needs to go get him. Um, and so that's why he was brought over from his, you know, by his cousin or his uncle um, away from the house because Dean was now on the loose, on the run. So, uh, but everyone knew, everyone knew. So some neighbors did describe that they had um, heard gunshots that evening, um, but, and, and she was, they were both murdered um, with a firearm. So, um but it, it was it was definitely no question about who was responsible. Sorry, all my notes are written down, so you're hearing lots of paper in this episode, I'm sure. Um, so I, I think, you know, for Dave, there was a lot of thought of, oh, my God, I should have been there. Like, this was an unusual night that his dad actually picked him up because his mom had plans. Um, so there was this survivor's guilt as well of, like, I could, he would have killed me, too. He killed my aunt. I mean, he would have killed me if I were there. Well, I think um, he also even reflects very wisely sort of having an adult spin on the situation and, and, and the potential for what could have happened. He comments during the documentary on that there would have been the possibility of if he had been present, that he would have, could have been a victim rather than his mom in order to hurt her more. Because that, that oh, ultimately yeah. was the goal of this this awful killer was right. to just inflict as much damage to this this woman who dared reject him. Right. Yeah, that was really interesting insight. Yeah. Coming all these years later. So it, he obviously talks a lot in this documentary about this sort of being the incident that catapulted his trajectory into um, a life of using drugs. I think he said even that night was probably one of the first times he had really used um, marijuana just to zone out and take the edge off of everything that was going on in his grief and his loss. Um, he does say later in the documentary, I was well on my way into addiction. I mean, and I, he almost says it sort of as a, an, an, as a, like a catch up of like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not blaming my history of substance abuse on this traumatic event. I was well on my way there, but then this was the doorway. And, you know, hearing him say that, I just wanted to like, I, I really wanted to reach out to him and go, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, doesn't. because trauma is, is trauma and you don't have to make any excuses 
for whatever period no. you went through due to substances. It is a, a thing unto itself, but you know, it certainly didn't help the situation. But right. you know, I mean, I felt like he was kind of in that recovery mode of like I have to take responsibility for my actions, mm-hmm. which I really applaud. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I, I would I would want for him not to feel like he has to diminish any aspect of this horrific right. event on well, his life. And in the same breath, when you know, one of those conversations, he says, you know, this shaped everything going forward into my adult life, whether it's, you know, my drug use or my relationships and how I related to people and distrusting people or, um, you know, who he choose to, chose to let into his life. And I think that's, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to reshape who you are to your very core of everything. Um, some of those things, you know, he gravitated towards, you know, maybe some darker things or, um, a lot of the ways in which we see men cope with trauma and depression that is just trying to feel good. And it's usually in behaviors and acting out rather than with women. And they have more traditional sort of depressive symptoms that we see. So, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not, it, it is what it is. And they both happened along the, at the same time, but there's no, um, he was a victim in this just as much as everyone else. And Absolutely. there's no changing Absolutely. and there's no um, fault of anyone for how you're coping. I mean, he had he had a wonderful support system around him. I mean, you also throw in the element that he was just about, you know, to sign record deals and a rising rock star. And, you know, yeah. at a very young age, going to be whisked off into this world of, you know, playing world tours. Um and then maybe, you know, you're ripped away from your social support system at that point. So there's so many factors that lead into this. Um, so uh, we talked about, like, in that two months that Connie had been broken up from Dean, um, that, yes, he would watch her and see when she was coming, when she was going. He would also just show up at restaurants when she was out with friends and glare um, across glare, the restaurant. Yeah. Completely glaring at her, um, would, um, just know her plans, um, and where she was going to be all the time. And there's, there was also an, an incident where she was having a meeting with an entertainment executive and, it, you know, they were at a restaurant, and at the end of the night, they shook hands, and the man gave her a kiss on the cheek and said goodnight. And then at the hotel room that night, that individual, that executive, he got a phone call from what was likely Dean. I mean, he didn't identify himself, but he had the same New York, New Jersey accent, um, and basically told him to stay away from his girlfriend and proceeded to know what flight that guy was getting on the next day, what his home address in Connecticut was, asked, hey, how would you like it if I went and visited your wife? Um, If you ever go near my girlfriend again, I'm going to break her knees. Which is like, how, how interesting is that? That he doesn't threaten violence against the guy. Right. Specifically, he right. threatens about against both of the women that he assumes are in his life, his wife and and Connie, who is not, there is no relationship between them other than this. But like, you know, I stop know. this, I'm going to go hurt her. I had to read that over again because yeah. I thought he was saying he was going to break his knees and it was her. Um, 
so yeah, it was it just completely terrorizing her. Um, do you want to talk about the incident when he breaks into the home when Dave is there? Just quickly touch on Yeah, that. I mean, it's it's a, a harrowing story in itself where Dave recounts, I think he was, this was, he was probably sick. close to the end, so maybe like 13 years old, maybe 13 No, they were already broken up, so he was um, 15. Okay, so he's 15. He he's home watching television, and he hears a lot of noise. And then I guess it stops. So he gets up and he goes to a different floor of the condo. Might have been his mom's bedroom. I believe it's his mom's bedroom. He goes in and he sees that the screen, not the screen, but the entire glass glass window has been removed. Which would make a hell of a lot of noise. Right. So immediately he's calculating. He knows exactly who he is. It is. He knows it's Dean. He knows something's going on. And the way he addresses it is that he leaves that room, goes back to the floor. Goes into a bathroom. Right. And, and then comes back out and it's like, Mom, Dean, are you there? So he's realizing, even at this early age, he's got to protect himself. Right. So then Dean responds, oh, yeah, I'm here. They interact with each other. Dean is going, oh, wow, I'm glad you're here. Something was going on. There was a loud noise. I don't know what it is. And Dean responds, well, Dave responds. Dave, sorry. No, no, Dean responds. Oh, okay. You know, like Dean goes, well, let's go, let's go see. So they're walking around the condo and Dave recounts like, I was lying because I knew it was him. He knew I was lying. He knew that I knew what he was doing. I mean, it was just like, it's It's chilling. So chilling. To hear like a 15 year old having to deal with this. And then it ends up another, you know, it it then moves into a horrific incident where. um, He shows him there's a gun. He shows him there's a gun. He takes out handcuffs. He handcuffs him to the toilet. Right. And it's just brutal. Yeah. Brutal experience. Awful. And. He comes away unharmed, I mean, physically, which is good, right, but right. just go, it shows, it goes to show you, you know, kind of circling back around to those ideas, of course, of control. Now he's trying to do the same thing to Dave that he was to Connie. Right. You know, those elements of degradation and gaslighting and, you know, intimidation and, you know, d- you know, sort of trying to corral a person's experience into a very narrow purview. Sure, sure. So I I want to read um, a written note that Connie wrote, and this comes from a court document that I'll, I'll link in our show notes, um, but this was addressed to Dean, and it was dated February 19th, and I think gives a really good idea as to just her mindset and what she was living with, and really echoes everything that we've talked about so far today, and these are in her words, quote, I'm so sorry that you're still so angry and you feel a need for vengeance and punishment. You're accomplishing your goal. I feel like a walking dead person going through the motion of life, like a small wild animal who knows it's surrounded by a pack of wolves. The smallest sound or movement makes me jump. The sound of the phone is now frightening. Another hang up. I'm so locked up in my own house, afraid of every sound the walls have probably always made. I walk out of my house, a coffee shop, a gym, looking. Terror. Until I get into my car and know that the doors are locked and I can breathe again until I get out. Then it starts all over again. How long is it going to go on? 
end quote. So well, it's also beautifully written. It is. You know? it, I mean, that even gives you more of a of an idea of what she's about. Right. Well, true, true. Um, so Dean, whose real name is John Alexander Dean Riccardi, he goes on the loose for eight years. He is in the wind. Yeah. Out there. Um, eventually, the FBI ends up working this case as an FBI's most wanted. Um, so it, the the documentary does interview um, the case agent, and he kind of goes through. I, I think about 1987 um, is when they really start taking taking it over and trying some new tactics, which I thought were really creative. And this guy did his due diligence, that's for sure. Um, so he goes on America's Most Wanted. They. Or they actually go. They do a, st- a story on the TV show America's Most Wanted um, with John Walsh, and John Walsh sits down with Dave Navarro in this um, documentary as well. But so they're sort of simultaneously running that episode, and then they start thinking about the characteristics of this guy Dean, and they're going, okay, vain, charismatic, um, cares about his looks, always has. Why don't we reach out to some plastic surgeons and see maybe he's changed the way he looks because he has been totally off the radar for eight years. So the FBI ends up sending a flyer basically with various images of him to every plastic surgeon in the nation. And sure enough, they get a doctor in Houston that says... I think I've treated this guy. Um, and sure enough, um, 1999, the, he is arrested in Houston. And talk about, like, hitting the nail on the head about Vane. When they arrest him in his suitcase is a copy of the America's Most Wanted episode that he was on. He's carrying it around with him. It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. This guy was a piece of work. I mean... Yeah. In in the same and continues to present as a piece of work all through the the, the trial, trial and, and the yeah. things he says it's it's unbelievable yeah so so at trial I mean he's older now um, during this trial he's pretending that he's hard of hearing he's totally putting on this show for the jury you know acting confused like he doesn't know what's going on super over the top he's not a very good actor well I mean what's <laughs> what's interesting is they the the attorneys that they speak to really made a great observation that it's not only about him being not being a good actor it's about not he's so narcissistic that he doesn't understand his audience so he's immaculately groomed mm-hmm. but he's pretending that he's deaf which it's like and and pretending that he's confused and that actually works against him like the right. jury immediately hated him. Well, no, I won't say hated. I don't know if they hated him. But they clearly, you know, they turned on him is the term that was used. They, sure. Everybody turned on him, which yeah. is great. I'm glad they did. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, we would call that, you know, in threat assessment, um, in violence and, and threat assessment, um, we look at that as leakage. So it's the idea that you 
you literally are leaking information and leaking behavioral traits because you can't contain them for whatever reason. Either you want to tell on yourself or you have characterological disturbances, in this case, his extreme vanity, that make him basically tell on himself. Yeah. You know, if he had had any insight, he would have gone, oh, I should play this a different way rather than a doddering old man. Yeah, it wasn't very sophisticated. I want to know what surgery he got. I was like, oh, he got surgery. I want to see what was like right. before and after. And they didn't, yeah, they didn't elaborate yeah. on that, which I, I completely get. But, you know, that's... <laughs> that's what that, you're curious that's about. That's like, when did he get time? Uh, um, but, yeah, the the court, he I think he testified in, in, on his own behalf because he was up on the witness stand. Um and then his mother testified against him. So that sh- blew my shit away. Too. Like I was watching it and I'm the world's worst at like multitasking because of my ADHD. So I'll be like, okay, I'm reading an article on Dave Navarro and I'm looking at this and I'm looking at this while I'm listening. And I did it like when I heard that, I went, what? what? Yeah. And paused it and replayed it several times. And man, she was, you could tell that mom had been put through the ringer with him. Oh my God. Clearly. Right. Clearly. And... It seems like she's done a lot of work and had just amazing boundaries and was like, yeah, this is basically what my son is. Um, Because essentially right after he murdered them, he called his father and said, I murdered these two girls in California. And then the dad hangs up the phone and she's like, oh, who is that, dear? What did he say? Oh, that was Dean. He said he murdered two women in California. So. I mean, that's not necessarily leakage. That's basically a tsunami. Oh, my that, God. I mean, I, I would be interested. Like, on one hand, this person is so reprehensible. You know, who wants to talk to him? But, you know, this is sort of, and I'm sure kind of leads into what you're about to talk about, about Dave going and yeah, attempting to, to talk with him to right. get some of the, like, understand the motivation. That particular um, admonition to his parents, I really, like, That's that makes me very curious. What was that about? I don't know. I don't think we're going to know. I don't know. I, I'm the thing that comes to mind for me is like if he needed money and someone to hide him, like maybe dad will be in my corner sort of thing. And even the mom even said, you know, he said this, but then he, there was this caveat of like, oh, these women deserved it. Like he was even trying to explain a way to his dad of, yeah, the, the, they they found out about my criminal record and they both freaked out and so like what was I supposed to do? Yeah, well clearly, you know clearly uh, another example of a lack of insight into how he's viewed and right. Yeah, yeah, but it's the prosecution did a fantastic job. I think they really brought out in court. It seemed to really illuminate Dean's just intolerance for rejection, which I think is a theme for all of these types of cases we're talking about this again going back to like she's finally had so much of my shit that she's breaking it off with me but that's inconceivable like how i've worked so hard there's no way like she this she can't have control at this point so um it took about eight hours for the jury to come back with a guilty plea um and he got the death penalty. Um, however, that got overturned in 2014, I believe. Um, and it, 
because of there's actually some some case law that came out of this. So I guess when they were picking jurors, it had to do with one of the jurors um, and their views on the death penalty and being um, making some inconsistent statements. So they wrote down sometimes when you're you're part of a jury pool, you'll fill out surveys. And so they sort of wrote one thing, but then said a second, a different thing and were dismissed because of that. Okay. Well, his attorney essentially just did a bunch of hard work and digging and got um, his his um, death sentence overturned because of this one juror that was dismissed based on these conflicting statements. So he has life. Um, and in the documentary, he is at San Quentin. And um, it's sort of the whole documentary is leading up to Dave going to go visit him face to face. And doesn't really know you know what he's gonna say and what why he's there but dean does sit with him for a little bit and they talk and he doesn't say a whole lot about what the conversation was like um i mean he's very fresh and sort of processing all of it right afterwards um but yeah he he comes face to face with his mom's killer and dean's even it sounds like he hasn't changed a bit he kind of comes in, sees Dave in the waiting room, and is like, oh, well, I didn't authorize for you to be here. Dave's like, all right, you can stay or you don't have to. And he goes, ah, I got a few minutes. Like, <laughs> um, And by the way, having worked in California Department of yeah. Corrections, um, that's bullshit. Right. Because you, you can't just to, pop up You can't and just have pop visitors. in. There's a whole list. You have There has to be communication. I mean, pay, I mean, inmates have rights as well. and. Right. So that was a lie. You can't just surprise them no, with yes. That was a lie. Yeah, yeah. He was he was trying to control the situation. Right. So and that was a statement that was meant to throw Dave off, and yeah. it sounds like he handled it really well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love how we're just calling him Dave. Like we're just, like, I know. You know, we're just buds, Mr. Navarro. You know, I <laughs> this I went down a I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole that we won't. We probably could do a whole other episode on, but you know, this is such a an extraordinary circumstance and it's so specific of you know what what does happen to children when their parents are victims of violent violent crimes that's very specific it is specific. we've talked so much about trauma even Absolutely. in teens and kids before but we um I mean, it's what's interesting is that having looked that up is there is a lot of research on it. I mean, there's a lot of research going all the way back to the 80s yeah. that psychiatrists and psychologists have actually been looking at this phenomenon. And it's not necessarily anything that is completely unexpected, um, but it just reinforces like the, you know, just removing a sense of um, all sense of groundedness from children that are probably just now coming into a period of understanding where they are in the world and where they are in their family dynamic. And the idea that this was ripped away from this young man is just tragic. And, you know, he talks about immediately starting to use and self-medicate and, you know, um, I, you know, a lot of art is born of pain. Sure. And it sounds like he numbed himself out for a good long time and is now sort of, maybe even this documentary is a way to sort of exercise these demons and, oh, I think so. and process a lot of that. But it was very interesting to look at. It's all in line with basically PTSD. I mean, those, what 
what they um, experience. And here's something that came up that blew my mind that was so specific about the research. And these will all be in our show notes. But the, the research showed that in 2000, um, in Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, the study showed that about one of every five children who have lost a parent will develop some some form of psychiatric disorder. And when we say that, there's a wide spectrum of psychiatric disorders, including various forms of depression that can be transient or long-term or anxiety. Right. Or and, substance abuse disorder. Exactly. Um, but then, and so one of the quotes is, having the loss of a parent disrupts our foundation, our sense of security and safety, having secure attachment, having this parent provide everything that our parents provide for us. This all gets blown to pieces when we lose a parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can imagine, I mean, when, having heard that statement or read that statement and going back to how Connie was described as being sort of the cool neighborhood mom that everybody could come to. And and I, I'm not going to repeat the content of it because I want everybody to go watch this on YouTube. It's actually really good. But, you know, and I say this with great love and compassion, Dave, but you were being a little bit of a dick to your mom, which was completely age appropriate in development terms, right? You know, right. To tease her the way he was teasing oh, her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was edgy. I mean, he was an edgy, edgy kid, obviously. Yeah. But, um, it's, and she handled it she like handled it her own, <laughs> like, like really beautifully. Just sort of, she seems like she was a, you know, she was Wonder Woman kind of deflecting right? the bullets with her bracelet. She's kind of amazing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of research on this that's that's very very interesting about how. You know, younger children, certainly, that don't have an... Sometimes younger children will have an advantage because they don't understand the totality of death. And therefore, as it comes to them, it's more of an organic experience as opposed to someone like him at 15 to have the rug completely yanked Mm -hmm. out from under him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, even as a young man in his 20s, eight years later when they catch Dean and he has to go through this and relive all that. Right. I mean, it's, it's incredibly traumatic and I'm, it's clear from watching the documentary that he's done great work on himself yeah. I and mean, he's, he's done a lot of processing. Um, now the, but the most interesting point that jumped out, I mean, there's a lot that I won't go into, but one of the most amazing things, and it's not justifying or minimizing by any means, but it talks about how, how specific is this? Children whose parents, who who experience parents' violent death, have a tendency towards perfectionism and end up usually being more successful. Wow! Like they're they're outliers in success. Interesting. And isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a generalization. I think it's a very specific view in a study, and studies can be skewed. But that was a number that I found very interesting. And but you can kind of understand it. Like if all of your drive, all of that loss, all of that pain goes into oh my god yeah this, this is going to be my coping my coping is going to be my music my art my my academic pursuits my athletic pursuits i mean he's one of the greatest guitar players ever. of yeah. modern times of ever yeah 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 and and there's so many other pursuits i mean he's doing wonderful work um i highly recommend you guys to look up um the organization above ground it's awareness for treatment and mental health issues. Um, they recently did a benefit concert here in LA a few weeks back. Um, with his art, he does a lot of donating to art auctions for like, there's, um, 
an organization called Linda's Voice. It's for domestic violence prevention and awareness and just an advocate for people who have undergone trauma and especially obviously his heart lies with those that are are child victims of that so his if you want to look at his art his instagram is life after death street and look up hashtag trauma kids he's done actually some really cool stuff um, with imagery of black dahlia and then he did which is like my favorite that I showed you with Amanda Knox, the patron saint of injustice. He's done some really cool street art with her That's a really amazing graphic. It really, it's, yeah, we'll, we'll repost it, but it's, it's pretty awesome. And a couple months ago, he was so nice. He sent us packs of stickers of some of these images. So, um, so that's Connie and Dave Navarro's story. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to build on what you were yeah, saying yeah. Though, about him being an advocate. And, sure. Um, he's part of a movement that I think is very important that we should all be aware of, of men coming forward and making these statements. because yep. and, and men in high positions. Um it's so important for someone in a position of power. I mean, I don't think that it's everyone's responsibility. There are some artists who say, look, my only, my only job is to, uh, is to perform. perform. That's it. I don't, I don't owe anybody anything except my performance. And I, I get that. I respect that. I mean, I, I, I hear where they're coming from, but when I see people like him who will get up and, definitively state that this is wrong and this is this is a template for a relationship that is not working. I mean, I think of other people like Terry Crews. You know, Terry Crews is his situation is different from Dave's in that he pretty much implies he doesn't I don't know necessarily if he implies that there was violence in his previous relationships, but he certainly implies that he had a different template for a relationship that was unhealthy and he had to come to a different place. And the guy clearly has come a long way. Yeah. I mean, when you hear him speak on it, it's amazing. And that's th- those are just two. There are plenty of them out there. And for them to be this. men in power in the entertainment industry. Right. In this in these in this day of, you know, Harvey Weinstein and pulling his crap. Right. Um, That's even diminutive to call it crap. It was so chronic and and awful. Um, I mean, I I will say this there. Who's the other one? Um, Oh, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart is a huge advocate because he witnessed uh, domestic violence perpetrated upon on his mother. Mm. Um, So he's been really huge. Daniel Craig is huge. Oh, okay. Um, and this is, there are some really great articles. I find myself in a position where I did a lot of research because I wanted to see, you know, what, who, what people were standing up. And it's interesting because Terry Crews is a great example of somebody that comes forward with this idea of, hey, I was in a different place and I challenged myself to come forward. And there are some other people that are taking the stance that are they're doing it to cover their past behaviors rather than admit where they are. I won't name any names, but they're pretty... Because everyone's on the oh shit wagon of... Right. I I think there are some people that are trying to get a... You know, so if you're going to do that, like, okay, that's great. But, like, uh, be up front with who you were before. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, Dave sounds like he's going to be a leader for this, and and he continues to be. This is not something that I think he's going to drop anytime soon, which I think is wonderful. Not at all. Um, 
So I was telling you last week that we recently dropped off the top 100 true crime podcasts what? in the United Wait, States. Wait, it was top 200, right? 200. Oh, did yeah. I say 100? <laughs> I wish we were in the top 100. <laughs> um, so did you want to do some vocal groveling right now? To oh, tell oh people I'm going to grovel. Yeah, you know what? I have, I like groveling. Uh, Doesn't I'm phase you. really good because I'm Southern, <laughs> so we know how to like kiss ass. Um so you guys, like we said, we're we're at our two year mark. We've made some amazing accomplishments over oh. the last couple of years. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> it's easy for you to say. We're in a really hot closet I right know. now, <laughs> trying to finish up. Yeah, but uh, we've we've covered a lot of ground. We've gotten a lot of great feedback. Um, we're doing some really fun things. Um, and in this industry, it is it is still about numbers. So. Please, uh, if you would, go and give us a uh, a review on iTunes. That would be really helpful. We would love to just hear your feedback on the show. And we have we have so many people that reach out on social media and emails. And we get emails all the time that we're like, you know, pen pals with people by now. We're writing back and forth yeah. so often. Um, but if any of you want to take some of your feedback and throw that in a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating, um, those are the things that matter to getting us back up in the the ratings and we had really great momentum over the summer and we want to just continue that out through the end of the year and I think it will with some of our live events and getting exposure in other ways um, but we would be very appreciative if you would um, you can also find us on our social media so our Instagram is at LA Not So Podcast and Twitter is at LA Not So Pod and then Facebook Facebook.com slash LA Not So Confidential. And we have an event coming up. You want to tell about that? Yeah. So we have our true crime event coming up October 30th. And that is going to be co-presented by us and Rebecca Sebastian of the Dialogue Podcast and Yellow Tape True Crime Trivia. So we are going to be doing some true crime trivia at this live event. And then she's going to interview us for Dialogue. And then we're going to have some more true crime trivia. So um, it is free. It is at the Friend Bar in Silver Lake here in Los Angeles, and it is going to be so much fun. It's kind of a true crime weekend. On Friday night, the 18th, um, Murderish Podcast is having a meetup, and there's going to be a ton of local podcasters there from the true crime realm. So we will be there. So So if you're local, please come. Please say hi. Yes, please. Um, So that's in a couple weeks, and we will be back with a really fun Halloween themed episode uh, towards the end of the month. We're working on that now. Um, And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye bye. Mm